0: If you will now open your Bibles, Acts chapter 4. As we are continuing in our study of Acts, we're looking at this idea of a gospel community, or what we call church, that is being formed by the Holy Spirit, uh, founded by Jesus Christ, but the Holy Spirit is the one that is forming this, done among an unlikely group of people, staunch Jews, who were one of the only monotheists of the day. Most were polytheists, multiple gods. And so the most unlikely group is that group of people who have retained their religious identity over thousands of years despite the Holocaust And that is, there is one God. And yet it was this group of people who make claims that Jesus is God. Done among a likely, unlikely, specific group of Jews. These being fishermen, uneducated. And yet, we see in just a few decades, a movement that begins around Jesus Christ that literally overtakes the Roman Empire and is still in existence today, not found listen, the discipleship community is not found in the steeples and buildings of Europe or in America and the countrysides. The movement is found among you. It is a people, still. And today they look more Asian than Caucasian. Just as a matter of observation of facts of, of who the church is today. But nonetheless, we are a part of it if we are under the name of Jesus Christ and realize that it is by his, by his spirit and by his power that we have any hope whatsoever. We who say our bodies belong to Jesus are part of this movement. And it has always been met with resistance. We're going to talk about that this morning. The resistance to the discipleship community for the very first time, and now has been a hallmark over thousands of years, resistance to the discipleship community. Today, in America, the the big thing that's going along among online, among Christian circles, are are the various recent forms of resistance to the church uh, and to really secondary issues. I say primary are those. Doctrines, things that we believe that pertain to the definition of salvation, secondary, is not any less important. It's just not primary to what we define as salvation. Of course, the uh, same-sex issues are the ones that are at issue uh, at the prominent spots today, um, where we have in Houston a mayor that for whatever reasons, and I'm not sure all the reasons why, has asked to subpoenas, various sermons in Houston pastors who have been resistant to a decision and to the mayoral candidate there. And so that's kind of alarming. But then we get word just, I got word last day of a couple in Idaho, a, two pastors who work in a wedding chapel which I don't always agree with, but nonetheless, they're there, and they are now uh, involved in a lawsuit uh, and dealing with them being requested, asked, and forced to uh, marry uh, a couple through uh, which they have uh, religious convictions against. And so that is what it looks like today, and that's what the the forefront of it is. And the, the thing of that is, is that the gospel is really the heart. If someone doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, then yeah, they're going to disagree with a, a believer's perspective in regarding sexuality, in regarding family, in regarding marriage, regarding any number of issues because the core of it is different. I don't have any reason to expect someone who's not a believer to agree with me in regards to the definition of marriage. Why should they? Secondary, but at the heart of all the secondary issues is one primary question. And so when we see the resistance that begins in Acts 4, we're going to look and realize that it is at the heart of the issue. You see, whether or not someone agrees with me on the same sex issue of marriage is wholly dependent on what we think the authority of Jesus is, the authority of God's word, how we know anything about Jesus, is wholly dependent on that one issue. And so if we get to the issue or get to the question of who is Jesus, what authority does he have, how far does that authority go out, then a lot of these secondary issues really get dealt with by the god and so at the core is going to be this question of jesus now understand like john the baptist we may get put in prison because we say to a ruler that this is what marriage is do you realize that that's what john baptist got put in prison because he had the nerve to tell the ruler you're not in a marriage And he thought he was, and his wife thought he was. But John the Baptist said, no, you're not. And ultimately, he was beheaded. So like John the Baptist, we may get killed as extreme forms over secondary issues. But it's tied to the authority of Jesus Christ. And so that's where... John, or Peter and John, are finding themselves. In Acts chapter 3, you remember, they're just going to the temple, they're just praying. And on the way, they see someone uh, that has been uh, lame for over 40 years, since birth, and he's always at the gate. And this time, as they're at the gate, evidently, Peter senses some directing of the Lord and speaks to him and says, I don't have any money to give you. I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, arise and walks, and he arises and walks, and everyone is astounded. And so what happens in, the, uh, in an inner gate gets moved out to the colonnade where there are thousands of people around, and they're seeing me crowding around as this guy is making a royal scene. I mean, he's jumping up and down. Uh, he, he's, he's causing attention. And so Peter takes the, the opportunity to talk about it and say, let me tell you how this happened. This didn't happen because of who I am or any kind of piety that I have. Let it be known to you that this happened in the name of Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. And you chose uh, to, to kill and set Barabbas free. And in thus doing, you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. And he goes on preaching. And so... That's where we find ourselves mid-sermon, all right? Mid-sermon. So Acts chapter 4, as they were speaking, verse 1. Let's stand as we read this together. As they were speaking, let's see what happens. As they were speaking to the people, the priest And the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Anas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with this man? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in all at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, So we study this, I want to present to you two main objections to the claims of Christ as we read this, that's given to us in the text, and then we see the answer to these two objections. And so, notice as we read verse 1, that the crowd that's there, the, the, the assembled group, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. And so this is essentially the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. Now, one thing you need to know uh, about Sanhedrin is that they were the wealthy sect uh, they were the ones that were in it for the power. Uh, and so they had a very pragmatic uh, faith in Judaism. In fact, they had gone through the text and tried to uh, eliminate or reinterpret everything in the Old Testament in such a way that was palatable uh, to reasoned minds of the day. And so consequently, they did not really see that the prophecies for Messiah was really speaking to a real person. It was an, an ideal That God was talking about this ideal that would come and they had certainly ruled out any such silly notions as such a thing as a resurrection and so they did not believe in the resurrection because you know how do you explain that to modern minds you know one of the things that uh that sometimes we think of is that we live in the modern age and and so this stuff that happened in the in the new testament man that's just because they were superstitious and and prone to believe magic and we we have this thinking and the problem is is that that's a straw man we put up and it really isn't what happened in these days you need to know that in the Roman era was one of the most pluralistic societies that has ever been. It was a one world government, and for that to work, they had to allow all these various religions to continue as, as they were, and they didn't try to strip them away. And so they allowed gods to exist of Ephesus, and there were limited gods. They're just, you know, in this country, you have a god. And there was multiple gods, but there was one thing that they could not have, and that was that these gods would claim any kind of exclusive nature over another god. Uh, and so Judaism was only allowed because they kind of kept to themselves. They were not influential. They did not have a missionary mindset. And so you guys, you guys are backwards. We're just going to keep you, uh, in this little corner because you are, you are not effective influencing society. Uh, but anything that did claim, well, they would stamp it out. In fact, there was one simple thing is that Caesar was King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Does that sound familiar? It should. It it did not start with the Bible. Actually, it was a reaction of the Christians against what that was being said about Caesar. Caesar was the divine one, and all the other deities were underneath this one. And so that's why we have these titles of Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords because it was a an affront. It was intentional, saying I do not bow down to this government. I was witnessing to one man uh, who was an, an atheist. Um, and he uh, was an older. He was, a, uh, I think, of the baby boomer generation, is what you would call him. And so he he and I were discussing, and he said, you know, uh, the thing is, that he didn't want to jettison Jesus. He said, the thing is, is that, you know, this day, I mean, there's so many religions. There's so many things that we've got to work with one another about. And when that happened, that was... Okay back then, but we live in a different era. And I I just kind of burst his bubble a little bit. (laughs) Do you not realize that there were many religions when Jesus came along? It's like he kind of had this, this mindset of that was okay back then. But you need to know that Jesus entered into a pluralistic society. And so here these Sadducees were trying to stay up with the times and be reasonable and acceptable to the modern era of that day. So consequently. Verse 2, notice what it is they're annoyed by. These now are greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus their resurrection from the dead. That's two big strikes. You're saying there's a resurrection from the dead, and you're saying that Jesus did it, and you're making claims that he's the Messiah. I don't think so. They were greatly annoyed. And so what did they do? They arrested them. Put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And then you got verse 4. It's like this word, but. It's kind of like, meanwhile, while this is going on, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Now, you remember the Pentecost. There was about 3,000 then at that time. And so now there's 5,000. These are rough estimates of what's going on. So there's 8,000. And we know from this point to the Pentecost that there have been People coming daily to be believers. This is a city of about 40,000 people. And so we know that there's 8,000 in untold numbers that are coming every day. That's significant change in a city. Can you imagine that? Uh, in a 40,000 40, population, you get 8,000 plus in just a matter of a few weeks. That's huge. That's the work of God that's going on. And so that's what's happened now just get this these guys believed verse 4 these believed and they saw Peter and John get arrested and yet they believed can you imagine that I'm sitting here and I'm preaching and, and just like mid-sermon some folks come in and they take me and, and handcuff me and, and, and say okay we've got to get you removed because of the things that you're saying and as I go I say hey guys anyone want to come with me Anyone, any of you want to experience this? And 5,000 do. and the light of what's being done. And so, verse 5. The elders, rulers, scribes, many of these were the ones, or some of these were the ones that were uh, on trial of Jesus. Verse 6, Annas. Um, and we've got these other men mentioned. Annas is kind of like the, the godfather here. Okay? He has served... As high priest. But not only has he served. As high priest. Uh, back in 6 and 15. Then he also had 5 of his sons. He arranged 5 of his sons to serve as high priest. And his son-in-law. So he's the puppet master. all right. He is the religious godfather. Of, of the day. And so here they are. And he has preserved. And will preserve power. Uh, and And now he's. Talking to Peter and John verse 7 when they them in the midst they inquired notice the question by what power or what by what name did you do this what's the first question it's the question about power about authority you see as we read this there's two things that really bug them one is a historical jesus with supernatural power. Objection number one. Historical Jesus with supernatural power. You see, here's how our society wants to work like they were wanting to work. Religion is subjectively helpful to people. It, it will help you be a benefit to someone else. Right? It will help you get through life. It will give you hope and give you comfort. So that's the simple thing. is It wants to be subjectively Helpful, but our culture wants to say, though it's subjectively helpful, it cannot be objectively true. All right? The problem that Sadducees are feeling and sensing right now is that they know Jesus came, He's objective, He's historical, He's right there, and now He's coming with power they cannot just say you know what just kind of keep this to yourself because that's what they want them to say in fact that's what they do tell them just keep this to yourself If you believe this that's okay let it be subjective but if you start claiming this is objectively true and do so with power that's a problem how many of you have ever had a conversation where you share your testimony and the response is i'm glad for you i'm glad that works for you you've heard that raise your hand if you ever heard that it doesn't take long look around for a little bit okay keep it up and just look around i want you to understand look you see we're not alone we're not alone in this this is kind of where they're wanting to go but it's hard to do that when everyone has memory of jesus and no one can really refute this claim though they want to that jesus risen from the dead because they don't have a body that they can show, and then besides that, you've got this this guy that's just smiling away, who everyone knows has been lame for forty years, and he's just sitting there like a dummy. I mean, how do you how do you refute that? There is some objective stuff going on that they're really struggling with, and then the other objection: by what power, by what authority, what name did you do this? And here's where they're going to come up with the other one. The exclusive authority of Jesus. You see, what this really is, is who has the power. When someone says to you, you know, I don't really believe that Jesus is the only way to God. That, that no, one, no one can really make exclusive claims to truth. I mean, all roads lead to God. You're going to hear this. But as they are saying this, keep in mind, they are presenting to you exclusive claims. Right? They are presenting to you exclusive claims. And what they're wanting to do is to shape the, the, the table or set the table. They want to be in the driver's seat of who will have the influence and power Of this culture. You see Annas, Caiaphas. These guys. They want to set the power. They're simply saying. Who gave you a license to do this? Where's your license? We've got a license. The Christian faith would not get a license in Rome. For hundreds of years. They would not get recognized. By the Roman Empire. uh, Even though. A good portion of them were believers. Because. It flew in the face. Of Pax Romana. This peace done by the Roman might, of which Rome was the sovereign ruler. And now they're making claims that Jesus is greater. What does that mean for the emperor? Now the emperor has to be held accountable by a standard outside of himself. That's a problem. So this is really about authority. Authority. Understand that when we are in these debates and we're in these discussions today of of all roads lead to God, are Jesus being the one exclusive authority in this? It is about who sets the agenda, who has authority. And everything is a faith claim, including this all roads lead to God. So you've heard that, right? And it's funny because everyone who says it, says it like they came up with it. You know, this, this goes way back to the Garden of Eden. Surely, it's not done just in by obeying God. You can eat of this fruit and be like God. All roads lead to God. It's not going to make you exempt. So, it, it's done with this idea of, okay, I've come up with this, this thought. So, you may have heard the parable of, uh, it's like an elephant, and you know you've got all these blind people and they and they see this elephant and they're trying to figure out well what this thing is, and someone fills a, a trunk or uh, fills a trunk and says, "Oh, this is a pig snake, or someone fills a, the leg and say this is a tree you know or um you know or they they feel the side they you know this is you know, this is the side of a house and and so they all come together and so what what they always say is that no one has the the corner of knowing the elephant and and because they're all blind, and so they have to work together. You've heard that? And so they, they say, well, this is how it is with God because no one can see God. And we agree, yeah, I can't see God. And, and no one wants to be deemed as arrogant because if we say that we have the full picture of God, and he comes through Jesus Christ, then we're smacking of arrogance at this point. It's like, I don't want that. I don't want to be arrogant. But here's the thing about that parable. The one all-seeing person in that story is the one telling the story. And so how do they know that there's even an elephant? How do they even know that someone just sees a portion? You see, the one who's really claiming arrogance is the one who's telling the story because at least what we're saying is we can't figure it out on our own. We need revelation. We need someone to reveal it to us. And the one person who's telling the story, they can see the elephant, says, well, you know, I kind of figured this out in my own intuition and reason. And so here they're asking the simple question, by what a power or by what name did you do this and then the answer simply is well there's verse 12 sums it up there's no other name under heaven given whereby men must be saved and that's the problem that, that the world has right now that verse 12 there's no other name under heaven given whereby a man might be saved a woman might be saved so as we read this we need to understand that this exclusive all claims are exclusive all claims are exclusive we cannot get past the fact that all claims are exclusive even this idea of tolerance you know we see that bumper sticker it's ever present you know the word tolerance and it's got all the different religious symbols uh, within it And I thought, you know, the person who puts that up does not understand any of the religions that are symbolized in this. And they have found a way, in fact, to insult most of the people in the world by diminishing each one of these religions. I think it's amazing how one word and how it's done with the symbols, they have offended billions of people. Because they are simply saying that, well, you know, the crescent representing Islam, you know, really, it's not all that it says it's to be, which claims that if you do not obey this, you will die. (laughs) And that's how they reached the world. Back in the medieval days was just Muhammad and his armies going through and having swords and saying, okay, submit. Islam means submit or die. And then there's like, oh, well, you know, there's really more than one way. So let's just be tolerant. And, and then, of course, yeah, the, the, the thing about Christian faith is like, well, okay, you don't really take seriously what Jesus himself claimed to be. If this is the case. So it is this exclusive claim that everything really uh, is not all that it says is to be and all things must work together for tolerance. This is amazing to me how this happens. But yet all things have these exclusive claims. But I would present to you that in the Christian faith is the exclusive claim that allows an amazing inclusivity. What do I mean by that? It is unique in Jesus Christ that you can have people of all types coming together and love under the name of Jesus Christ. It is something that the world up to this point, where until Peter comes along and the Holy Spirit works, they had never seen the community that took place through the Holy Spirit. It has radicalized the social stratus across all of the world that it's gone into. You know why communism has a problem with the Christian faith? is because it is at its heart undermining communism. Why India struggles with it is because it is undermining the social stratus that Hinduism props up. You know why slavery ended in America? Because the Christian principles undermined this idea that a human can be property, that they are instead brothers and sisters in Christ, because how can you treat them as slave once you see that they are in Christ? And so there's this, this work that's being done that's, that is the inclusive nature. Why? Well, if you go at the heart of, of Islam, you've got a, a Muhammad who is simply saying, you know, submit or die. And whoever has the power calls the shots. So rest power away. You got the heart of this truth claim of Christianity is a man who died for people who didn't believe in him. Looking at him to forgive the people as they killed him, he gave up his power to serve him. That's at the heart of the truth claim of the Christian faith. That is inclusive. Let me, October 2007. I think this is a, a powerful story that illustrates some of this. October 2007 was the Amish community killing in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Some of you remember this, this story in 2007 when you're Some of you are aware and alert of that. Essentially, a man was mad at God and took the school over. He sent out all the kids except for 10 girls. He lined them up next to the chalkboard. Two of the girls offered themselves to be shot. So that the others could be free. The gunmen at that point shot all of them one by one in the head and then killed himself somehow five of the girls survived that's how we know the story the parents of one of the little girls who died got into the buggy drove to the house of the shooter went up to the door and they talked to the wife and said we're not here for revenge we've lost our daughter but your children lost a father and you lost a husband. And we're here to grieve together. Now, what do we know about Amish? Are they fundamental? Yeah. By most definitions, we would call them fundamentalist. All right? But what does a fundamental, radical even Christian sect do in that situation? Amazing. Absolutely amazing. How is that different from other groups? There is at the heart of this claims of a man who was God, who died for people who rejected them, and even as he died, he forgives them. That is at the heart of what we believe. And so when we are at the as Christians following that message and let that message be the heart of who we are, then love comes in and inclusivity comes into the community. We say, I can't exclude you. See, it's not based on my good works. It's not based on whether I have a big beard or not. It's not based on whether I, I, I go and do the right circles. It's based on what Jesus Christ has done for me. And so it doesn't matter who you are, come as you are. Jesus is there for you. And so there's no one exempt out of that circle. What if you said, well, you know, what? I think I don't like this idea of Jesus and only through Jesus. Maybe it's just every good person. If you're just good, be good. Just do the best you can. Live with sincerity. Live with love. Do you know how exclusive that is? You have just excluded all the bad people in the world. And by the way, how do you define bad? Bad. Because if that's your take, where do you draw that line at? When we say, God, why not you just destroy all evil? Mm. Except every evil that lurks in my heart. So, the exclusive nature of the, cri- of the claims of Christ, even compared with this idea of just everyone be good, it's radically different and inclusive. As we read this, notice what happens. It, 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 as they say, it's none other given under heaven. And and as we read what he's preaching here, he says Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, rulers of the people of elders. I can't help it as I read verse eight, remember the difference of Peter being challenged and a little fireside chat that they had with some um, women the night that Jesus was crucified. Just even, are you associated with this guy? You hanged out with him. And and Peter's like, No, no, and just cursing his name, does it multiple times, and now the difference here of Peter Peter boldly before the rulers saying, let me tell you about this one. What happened in Peter's life? Well, it tells us right here. Peter, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit. That happened because of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. How do you explain the difference in Peter's life if Jesus is not who he says? How do we do that? And so Peter says, look, rulers, verse 9, Are we being examined because we healed someone? Is that why? Did we do something wrong? Listen, when people bring you to court, let it be because you're doing something right. Because you're loving people. And so, they said, verse 11, let it be known to you. And all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. Well, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. Now I read that awfully fast. Why? It's one sentence in the Greek. <laughs> I mean, think about it. If Peter just said, God did it, what would have been the implications there? Peter, Peter's back home. If he just says, God did it. They would all have been happy, they'd all praise God, good job. But, he didn't choose to say God did it, he said, let me speak to you about Jesus. In just one sentence, he just, bam! This is Jesus whom you killed, but he rose again. This is, and then he quotes Psalm uh, 118, that Jesus is the cornerstone. He says, you rejected him. But this was prophesied a long time ago. When you start talking about Jesus, it's where, it's where the difficulty is going to lie. Do you understand that? If you talk about God, people will applaud you as spiritual. But when you start talking about Jesus, resistance comes. He comes. And now, verse 12, there's no other name under heaven given by men by which we must be saved. Saved from What? Sin, but even more, what happens because of our sin? God's wrath. God's wrath. Do you understand what's at stake here? No one else is stepping up and saying, "I want, yeah, I want to save you from God's wrath." <laughs> the, you know, when we start looking, okay, who's going to save me? Is 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 Muhammad? Now, Muhammad said, no, "I'm just pointing to the truth." Yeah, we're gonna look at these different names. No one's volunteering and say, Yeah, I'll save you from the wrath of God. I mean, Hindus says, Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we just get another chance at this and we'll we'll try to do it over again. But I'm not gonna save you. no, no, no this isn't gonna save you from the wrath of God. There's no other name. You see, the problem is at the heart is my pride. The problem is at the heart is I see this world revolving around me. It doesn't matter if I fill it up with Baptist, good deeds. If you are counting on being baptized and being Baptist, then that's just pride decorated with religion. At the heart of it is that I realize I can't save myself. I'm messed up. I'm really messed up. And I can't save me. And, and God says, you know what? Your pride's the problem. And I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, it doesn't really matter what I do. It just, pride comes in a different form. And so Jesus comes and says, I'm going to give you something. Take that. You know how prideful our people are when someone gives you something? Like, no, no, don't give it to me. Let me work for it, please. I can't take your charity. And God says, deal with it. You've got nothing but charity. Do you want to have any hope with me? And Jesus comes and says, I'll do it. No other name under heaven that can do this. Now, we keep on reading. and what's, what's the answer here? What, what is the, the, uh, the answer to this objection? Well, simply, the transforming power of Jesus. The transforming power of Jesus. They, they're struck with a couple things. One, Peter, John. They're making these exclusive claims and they can see they are not... Intelligent. <laughs> Sometimes the, the thought is, you know, you're going to make an arrogant claim like this. You must be really, er- you've educated. You've got degrees. They see Peter and John, and they're not making any kind of intelligent, superior claims. They say, "You're fishermen. You're uneducated." They're not making any moral claims because they said it's not because of us. It's because of Jesus that this has happened. It's not in us, and so there's the transforming power that's going on in their life. So they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But here's the real one, verse 14. How do you refute the power of God when the man's standing right there grinning like a Cheshire cat? <laughs> see, You see that in verse, verse 14? But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. There is something about God changing you. So let's see what the reaction is. When they commanded them to leave council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been, trans- has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Listen to you. Listen to what they're saying. They don't believe, but it's not because they cannot believe. They say, we cannot deny this. The reason they do not believe is they do not want to believe because if they believe in Jesus, it strips them of their power. I'm convinced that is true for most today, most of us. And I just want to challenge you to think about that a little bit. Is it really that you cannot believe or you do not want to believe? How do I know that? Because it seems like the focus of those who do not believe is all the multitude of questions and reasons why they should not believe in Jesus. Instead of taking those same questions and applying it to the replacement belief. If you applied some of the same questions what people would say why they should not believe in Jesus Christ. And they applied those same questions to what they presently believe would they not also find that their system of belief is also woefully lacking? You see, here's the thing. us, Those who are believing in Jesus Christ, we get caught up in defending Christ. And we have, we have a apologetics in defending why we believe these things. I just want to challenge you for a little bit. Go ahead and do that. But do not be afraid to take the same questions they're asking of you and to ask them those same questions. Well, tell me, what do you believe? How did you come to believe that? Ask, simply ask them that. How did you come to believe that? Why do you believe that is true? Ask those same questions they're asking of the believer. You see, the very fact that the focus is on why we should not believe in Jesus reveals, they may not be saying it to themselves, but it reveals that they do not want to believe. And they're not being intelligently honest, or intellectually honest might be the right way. When they say, I'm really searching this out. Instead, they're searching out why they should not believe. But notice what verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. What exactly do they deny, not want spread? Verse 17. <laughs> okay, we do not want lame people walking. Really? That's atrocious. This is going to turn everything upside down. I mean, if everybody starts getting healed, <laughs> you see you see what they're saying here? Just the nature behind this is, this is about power. This is not about whether something good is happening. Okay, guys. We don't mind if you believe in Jesus. You worship God all you want. Just don't talk about it. We have freedom of worship. You can worship whatever you want. Just don't put it in the public sphere. That's where the problems start. Does that sound familiar? It is the age that we live in, but it's the age we have always lived in it. We just didn't recognize it. The goal of persecution is verse 18. Persecution exists so that we will not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's why it exist. There is no persecution where there is silence, or where the culture is so much in Christ that they do not see an irritant. So let me ask you is your life filled with persecution? I'm asking me this too if it is not is it because of the culture we walk in is so much in Christ that it isn't an irritant or is it because we're silent it is always the goal of persecution to silence talk about Jesus but Peter and John answer them Whether there is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God you must Judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I got to tell the story. It's what they've seen and what they've heard. This is what we call your testimony. It's not something someone taught you, it's something you yourself seen, something you yourself heard. It is a story and encounter with God. It's not just sitting and listening to the pastor talk about some things about Jesus. It's that you yourself encountered. Let me tell you what God has doing in my life. I think that perhaps maybe our lack of courage in speaking up has something to do with our lack of seeing and hearing God at work in our life. Peter and John simply said, you know, you judge about this, but I've seen this, I've heard this, and I just cannot stop. Talking about what I've seen and what I've heard. Do you have a story with Christ? So one time recently, I was just talking to a couple. And, and we were talking about how to have a story with Christ and, and what that means. And, and she responded and said, you know what? She was telling me and, 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 and talk about her history. But when it came down to it, she could not tell me of a time when she encountered in faith Jesus Christ as her Savior and Lord. I said, let's talk more about that. To help her along with what this means. Do you have that? Not just to say, you know, yeah, I, I, I adhere to some things in my life. But is God at work in your life? Do you talk to him? Is he talking to you? Is he speaking to your heart? This is what's going on here. And the fact of the matter is, is we've got to ask ourselves, What's right? Those of us who have encountered with God, we have to ask ourselves, is it better, is it right in the sight of God to listen to the public opinion of the day? Is it right to listen to the social opinion of the day, to listen to the political powers that may be? What is more right when they are in disagreement with one another? Verse 20 says, we cannot speak of what we've seen and heard. Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Do you know that the desire to want to be liked makes you a slave? Desire to have approval from your peers makes you a slave. You no longer live your life anymore. They live your life. It's a snare. It traps us. According to Proverbs 29, verse 25. Jesus said to him. Nevertheless, many, many of the authorities are going to rise up and speak against you. But don't fear. I've overcome the world. And verse 21, when they further threatened him, they let them go. Finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what happened. The problem is that for most of us, we would not say that is a happy ending. I mean, how did it end? Peter and John got beat. They, they just beat them up. And they had no good reason. Injustice went out. No justice here. When you are a disciple, you no longer lay claims to justice. Do you understand that? I know our society has been on that. It's lynched upon on that for a good reason. I believe there's Christian principles behind it. But as a Christian, be prepared for people to strip businesses away from you, strip you from positions of power. It's part of civil disobedience. For us to say, I will do what God's called me to do. Go ahead. I will endure whatever punishment may be. So a magistrate will say, you know what? I cannot no longer carry on this position as as a believer in Jesus Christ with what I believe about marriage. I step down. That was the right thing to do. We'll debate on something else about whether that's right in our society. That's another story. But it is right for us to step up and say, bring it on, whatever the punishment might be. So Peter and John get pulled out in mid-sermon. And yet 5,000 people still say, yeah, I want part of that. (laughs) The transforming power of Christ is for those in America... who are believers in America, who will say, I do not, will not, bow down to the God of materialism. I'm going to tell you, church, that is our problem. We're okay stepping up for Christ until it costs us something and materials. You mean i got to lose my job? Interesting enough, It's after this, not only did they open their mouths, the church opened up their purses for one another. Everyone wants to amen when a pastor says, I'm going to stay true to the word of God. And we're going to come what may. And Everyone wants that. But are we willing to pay the price of saying, what if that means your retirement account isn't there when you retire? Because you opened up your purse to help someone who lost their job for their stands in Christ. That's a little harder to really amen that, isn't it? But it is the work of the Spirit of God in our life. I'm sorry I've gone over. I really want to do less than that. But I also want to talk about this text. Let's pray together. And let's pray that God will do a transforming work in our heart and our life. It is the answer to the objections of our day.